If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Anthony Beaver is one of the world's best-selling military historians. He's mainly known for his books on Second World War battles, such as Stalingrad, Berlin and Arnhem. But for his latest book, which is published this month, Anthony is exploring the events of the Russian Revolution and Civil War, taking the story from the overthrow of the Russian Tsar Nicholas II in February 1917 through to the Bolshevik coup of October that year and the brutal conflict that followed, pitting the Bolshevik Red Army against the multitude of opponents ranged against them. Rob Attar spoke to Anthony to find out more. Most of the books that you've written over your career so far have been focused primarily on the Second World War era. What made you decide to head back some 20 years for this book? The more important thing was really to understand the chicken and egg, the chain of history of the disasters of the 20th century, which actually are still with us today, as we see in Ukraine. And I think it's terribly important for everybody, and also, above all, for a historian when writing about that particular period, to see how it fits in. The One great German historian referred to the First World War as the original catastrophe, and that is true, and that led to this great debate, what was the long war of the 20th century? Did it go from 1914 to 1945? or from 1914 to 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Michael Howard and one or two others argued that the original part of the First World War was an extension of the great power struggles of the 19th century. So one can go back if one wants to. But all I'm saying is it's not a question of arguing that. It's a question of just understanding the way that it all came together. 
And the importance, as I'd realized years ago, I think, uh, because I wanted to write about this subject long ago when I was actually not ready to tackle it, was the Russian Civil War and all of the civil wars around it. Let's face it, Hungary, Finland, Germany, uh, during that period at the end of the First World War, 1917, 1918, 1919, because that was what led on. It created a terrible fear amongst the middle classes after the horrors, the destruction, the wanton destruction of the Russian Civil War, some 12 million dead in it, even uh, rivaling the whole of the First World War. But at the same time also, it had galvanized uh, the left, the uh, Bolsheviks, the communists. And this is where one sees that uh, vicious circle of rhetoric, which develops above all in the 1930s. And as you know, I've written about the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and once there, of course, once again, one sees this fear of what had happened in Russia, uh, having this huge influence and a knock-on effect, providing, if you like, the proxy war of the Spanish Civil War, and even the Russian Civil War itself was to a large degree also a proxy war with British intervention under Churchill. So this is really what dominates the whole of our century. And I, I think that the Russian Civil War is is not understood well enough, partly because it's, it's a very much more complex and uh, focused subject than um, the many of the others. And that was why something for me, it had always been a sort of a tremendous challenge to do at some particular time. And it's all, in fact, almost entirely due to the possibility of the wonderful research done by my great Russian colleague over the last five years, Luba Vinogradova, which has, has made this one possible. And so, as, as you've said, you've, you and your colleague have spent many years researching this book. What new perspectives on, on the period and the conflict have emerged from the work that you've done over the past few years? I mean, to be perfectly honest, the sheer horror of it. I mean, the, the Spanish Civil War was cruel enough, but that was cruel in killings. Here one sees a, a savagery, a sadism, which is very, very hard in a way to still to comprehend. It's, it's a very difficult question, and I mean, it's one which I'm still uh, mulling over and, and, and trying to understand, the, not just the build-up of hatred over centuries, but the way that there was a vengeance which seemed to be required, which, as I say, went beyond the killing. I mean, it was it was this sheer horrible inventiveness of uh, the tortures uh, which were inflicted on people. And one therefore needs also to look at a, the origins of the Civil War in the sense of, you know, who started it, how did it start, was it avoidable? But one also uh, needs to see the different patterns between the Red Terror uh, and the white terror. And uh, this, again, was something reflected within the Spanish Civil War and almost all wars in a way, or all civil wars, and looking at the question, why are civil wars so much crueler, so much more savage than state-on-state wars? In terms of, of the terror that was inflicted by, by both sides on the Civil War, how far was that being centrally directed by the Bolshevik leadership or the, the white generals? And how far was, did that just emerge from the chaos of war? Well, a lot of it obviously did emerge from the chaos of war. Even the Cheka, under the command of Felix Zelzinski, never really controlled many of the local Chekas, where some of the worst atrocities uh, were committed in Kiev, Kharkov. I mean, again, names we're seeing every day in the newspapers here. It was a different pattern from two points of view. One was that 
as we found, say, with Franco and the, and the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War, a smaller party trying to control, or a smaller political grouping trying to control areas where they're in a tiny minority, will often resort to terror simply to make up for the numbers. And this was very much the case of Lenin determined to crush opposition to the Bolshevik coup d'etat in uh, November. Uh, of the great the great revolution, which they referred to, which actually was a coup d'état. They were immediately attacked by all the other socialist parties for their their arrogance and their determination to run everything. And they were obviously going to push them aside, having already then issued their basically threat of civil war, which was basically a threat of class genocide against the bourgeoisie, referring to them as lice, as cockroaches or whatever, which had to be exterminated. And from Lenin's point of view, therefore, the Red Terror was something which was essential right from the beginning. The other thing, which actually, funny enough, we are seeing uh, again today uh, from the Kremlin, is the torrent of lies, of complete falsehoods. And that was actually how the Soviet Union started. Lenin had promised the peasants that they were going to get the land when it was taken from landowners in the Orthodox Church. He promised uh, the factory workers that they would be running through the Soviets, they would be running the the factories. And he promised the soldiers suffering on the Eastern Front uh, that they would have peace, when in fact he was determined to change the imperialist war into a civil war. So there were the three fundamental lies right from the start. And truth has never been a factor, if you like, uh, ever since throughout the whole of the Soviet Union. And I think that this has been something, you know, one can go back into the Tsarist times, of course, you know, there were lies there, but that was much more a question of simply believing their own propaganda. Uh, Here, it is quite shameless, quite deliberate, as one saw right from the start in 1917 and right through all the way through the whole period um, of the Soviet Union. And this was to cover up, basically, their plan or Lenin's plan to exert total control in all directions. And he and Trotsky, of course, completely despised any idea of bourgeois democracy in their particular way, partly because they knew that they would not win the elections to the Constituent Assembly. And, of course, they were furious, and that was why, although they had, in theory, supported the Constituent Assembly, uh, which had been called forth by the provisional government, the moment that they were in power, and it was the date of the Constituent Assembly to open in the Tauride Palace. They then completely crushed it by bringing in their, their loyal uh, vanguard of sailors from the Baltic fleet, basically to eject and then prevent any of the elected deputies from returning. And that was that very, very brief moment of the very brief chance of democracy. And so it was, it was the infanticide of democracy. So, yeah, so that was... Before the October Revolution, there was, of course, the February Revolution where the Tsar abdicated. And so there was a few months where Russia had its provisional government and had perhaps a potential for democracy. I mean, why do you think that was snuffed out so quickly? Why were the Bolsheviks able to seize power so soon after the previous revolution? Well, liberals, and especially one thinks of the wonderful liberal tradition of Russia, of of Herzen, of Chekhov, of Tolstoy, uh, of all of their sort of wonderful writers and thinkers, they, in fact, were in a way incapable 
of getting their ideas across to the mass of the people who had been deliberately undereducated, uh, who'd been kept in ignorance for, for centuries, particularly, obviously, the serfs before the abolition of serfdom. Uh, there was a fundamental problem also, which was a political one. Hudson described the pregnant widow, the idea that when one regime has fallen, this is this is very dangerous interregnum before a new regime emerged, and the provisional government was in an impossible position. It was basically liberals, but then emerged with um, socialists from the Petrograd Soviet, trying to hold together a country which was obviously was split, uh, where the whole administration, both in the countryside and in the towns, uh, had disappeared. I mean, the police, of course, were the most hated of all of the Tsarist institution, and they had all had to flee for their lives for those who, was, who those of them who had not been killed during the February Revolution. People forget that the February Revolution actually was a very bloody revolution. It wasn't a bloodless one. But even then, there was a tremendous optimism that sort of at last there would be freedom and that that sort of affect everybody's attitudes, that Russians would love one another and all the rest of it. But in fact, with the destruction that was left after the riots, the way that in the countryside particularly, peasants and soldiers returning from the front would loot every alcohol base or every distillery they could, uh, and then would start burning and smashing up um, the estates and the landowners' manor houses and so forth. Even when they tried to hand over their manor houses to the, the peasants on the estate and said, look, it's yours, don't destroy it, they would still feel compelled that another landlord would come back in the future so they did have to destroy it. And this suited the Bolsheviks and Lenin exactly what they needed. They wanted lawlessness, they wanted chaos, because this upsurge of chaotic violence was actually bulldozing a way through for the Bolsheviks to seize power, because the liberals were incapable of basically doing anything about it. They had the, the levers of power attached to no um, forces of power. And all they could do was to say, well, we can't take any decisions until the new democratic constituent of assembly has come together and has taken the decisions. So that was why it was sort of doubly dangerous and why they were vulnerable. And it was frustration with the uh, lack of decision-making, uh, which, of course, uh, increased the power of the Bolsheviks, uh, simply because they were seemed to be the only ones who were in a position, really, to force through change. But nobody knew what the changes were going to be, because Lenin had kept that very, very quiet of what his real plans were. And once the Bolsheviks had seized power in October 17, how revolutionary was the government that they installed? Well, um, even many Bolsheviks were shocked by Lenin's extremism. Um, the idea of abolishing the police, abolishing the army and uh, all the rest of it, and having just red guards uh, from the factories of nationalising absolutely everything. This wasn't apparent beforehand, you know, they were going to take over the banks. And not surprisingly, both the, whether it was the banks or in the ministries, many of the uh, civil servants didn't want to work with the new government. Um, so this is when the paranoia started and Lenin wanted to bring in the Cheka uh, saying, actually, I mean, he was even accusing the bourgeoisie uh, of somehow sabotaging food supplies. Well, actually, the bourgeoisie had virtually no control over food supplies at all. 
a lot of the problem had been due to the uh, railways and the uh, lack of rolling stock. And in fact, in the earlier part of the year, Russia had perfectly uh, valid, perfectly good uh, food food reserves. But many of those uh, many of those were just wrecked during that chaotic summer with the lack of planting, with the lack of work uh, on the farm. And this was the start of a downward cycle. And every single measure that the Bolsheviks brought in to try to grab food from the peasants to give to the cities only made the situation worse and worse. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. These were communists from, from the cities sent out to extract the food, and they would just seize the seed corn as well for the next year. So um, the harvests uh, were totally disastrous. And, I mean, there was cannibalism in many areas. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So do you think there was anything that the Bolsheviks could have done differently to prevent the civil war that came, or was it really inevitable after their coup d'etat? The Bolsheviks, no, Lenin wanted the civil war. I mean, he argued straight out. He said the civil war is the sharpest form of class conflict, which is exactly what he wanted. It was the only way, in his view, for the Bolsheviks to take power. He knew that by, uh, and this is where the other socialist parties, you know, the socialist revolutionaries, the Menshevik, were horrified by his plans because um, they knew that after he had smashed the uh, cadets, uh, the, the liberals and, uh, and conservative parties, um, he would turn on them. And he certainly did. Even the left socialist revolutionaries who split away uh, from the main uh, part of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, even they joined the Bolshevik government purely because they thought that um, Lenin was going to implement the land reforms which they had advocated themselves. Well, this was just a clever tactic on Lenin's part. He said I'm, uh, he announced that he was pinching all of their ideas, which they welcomed, but then, of course, was not going to do anything about it. And eventually they then turned against him and revolted 
did in the following year until they were crushed as well. So there was no question about it. Lenin despised anybody who disagreed with him, even within it, especially within his own party. The, shall we say, the less extreme members who warned against this uh, complete seizure of power, this total dictatorship which Lenin was planning, you know, they were either uh, more or less ejected from the party or sort of kept uh, in a uh, kept in a sort of subservient uh, position. As soon as we got well into 1918, when uh, Lenin's arguments over the whole question of the agreement with Germany, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. And that, of course, is when the left socialist revolutionists realised that they'd been tricked and were so bitter and angry. What was striking was how little resistance there was in the February Revolution. Basically, Everybody was so angry and exasperated with the Tsar, with the total incompetence of the war effort, uh, with a lot of the corruption back in Moscow and in Petrograd, that, you know, they just simply didn't even bother to lift a finger. And there was, there was no organized opposition whatsoever. The opposition to uh, the regime only started to come about uh, when I say to the regime, but to the provisional government, uh, only started coming about when uh, Alexander Kerensky uh, was the prime minister and was sort of living in a, in a fantasy world. And the generals, uh, led by General Kornilov, certain generals led by General Kornilov, started to become exasperated, saying we've got to uh, reintroduce the death penalty. Uh, which have been abolished, simply to make sure that the soldiers stay there because they just tried this, attempted this disastrous offensive in the summer in, on the southwest uh, front against the Germans, uh, which led to virtually the collapse of uh, the Tsarist army there. And this uh, frustration um, did start to create the first hints, possibly, of a coup, not led by General Kornilov, funny enough. I mean, the Kornilov uh, whole thing, which actually provided the Bolsheviks with their real opportunity that summer, was a result of a major misunderstanding, and it was largely Kerensky's fault. It was also, Kornilov was not a very intelligent man, and there was a complete misunderstanding between the two of them. Kerensky believed that Kornilov was going to try and overthrow the provisional government and seize power himself, uh, which was not true. And Kornilov had been talked to by a complete fantasist called Lvov, not the Prince Lvov of the provisional government, but another one, who had uh, tried to persuade him that uh, uh, he was the one who should should uh, seize power, and, and that Kerensky wanted him to seize power. And this led to not just a misunderstanding, but the whole of the collapse of uh, this Kornilov affair meant that the communists were in a position, really, to start infiltrating the key areas of the security services and a whole lot of other things, which put them in very, very good stead, ready for their coup when it eventually came. But even then, Lenin was about the only one within the Bolshevik party who actually believed that a coup was possible. Uh, even Trotsky uh, was nervous. What Lenin perceived, and he was absolutely right, was that the success of a coup depends on the apathy of the majority not on how many people you had real supporters. Because Trotsky estimated that within the garrison, the huge garrison in, around, in and around Petrograd, there were probably only a couple of thousand who were actually Bolshevik supporters, when there were about 140,000 uh, who weren't. But they weren't prepared to do anything to save the provisional government. But that was all the Bolsheviks needed. Though with a tiny minority, uh, they were actually able to seize power. And how important to the outcome of the war was the 
fragmentation and disunity of the whites compared to the centralization and unity of the Bolsheviks. Very important point, absolutely central to the understanding of the war. The trouble with the whites was that they were, when one talks to the whites, one normally refers to mainly the forces led by former generals and commanders from the First World War, from the Tsarist army. But there were also, there were the socialist revolutionaries uh, who are appalled by the, appalled by the uh, uh, dictatorship which has been created in uh, Petrograd and the way that the Constituent Assembly had been disbanded. And they set up in, for example, in the sort of the Volga uh, region at Samara, there was the Komuch, which was they um, basically supporters for the, from the socialist revolutionaries, supporters of the Constituent Assembly. And they made an uneasy alliance with groups of white officers in that particular area. Uh, and there was always going to be tension right from the start, because most of these officers were anti-Semitic. There were many Jews in the Socialist Revolutionaries and the other Socialist parties. They were wanted to bring back shoulder boards. They also wanted to bring back the punishments of the Tsarist army, which meant they could, they could punch soldiers in the face on a summary charge, that they could even have the whipping of soldiers with using rifle cleaning rods and things like that, and all the worst aspects, if you like, of the Tsarist army. And of course, this created as a terrible tension the whole time. And one saw this particularly in, in Siberia, where we're not just at, at Samara, but then later at Ufa, the, when they tried to get a conference, so as to bring together uh, this extraordinary amalgam of basically uh, Siberian Cossack hosts uh, with the Samara Komuch, the liberal and um, social democrats, when obviously the two were completely incompatible. And in the South, though, you had, shall we say, uh, an uneasy alliance, again, between the Don Cossacks and, say, later the Kuban Cossacks and the white officers, who basically uh, distrusted the Cossacks, as they thought the Cossacks were not prepared to believe in a greater in the greater Russia, or in the all-Russia uh, that they believed in. But they wanted, they saw them as separatists, basically, that they wanted to have their own sort of Cossack federation. And the fundamental problem, especially when it came to the whites and their relationship, not just with the allies, but above all, with possible allies like the Finns under Marshal Mannerheim, uh, who had was winning the uh, Finnish civil war at this particular time of uh, in the early part of 1918, but also the Estonians and the Baltic states and the Poles later on with Marshal Pisotsky, because if they had combined, they could well have defeated the communists. I mean, uh, right down the whole of that uh, Western frontier, from Finland all the way down through to Ukraine and, and Donbass and the Don area. There, they were in a tremendous uh, advantage, and they had tr trained troops uh, who were extremely effective. But so the political aspect, the political disunity, and the arrogance of the white generals and the way that they treated, but whether the Finns or the Estonians or whatever, basically telling them they were still part of the Russian Empire. And so as a result, all of the nationalist aspirations of these border states were insulted and um, basically treated in a very, very stupid way, which actually made the white cause deeply unpopular, almost as unpopular 
as their appalling social policies towards the, the peasants. I mean, as far as they were concerned, uh, certainly for the Tsarists, uh, uh, they wanted to have all their land back from the peasants, uh, which was something which, of course, was going to create a tremendous hatred and fear uh, amongst all of those peasants who had profited from them. And so as a result, there was almost continual war. They had no proper administration. All they were interested in was basically getting what they could uh, from these local areas and the food which they did not pay for in many cases or paid very little for. So their own rear areas were always going to be open to uh, resistance groups, uh, particularly if one thinks of, uh, again, all of this area basically east of the Dnieper, uh, the area we're looking at now these very day in our newspapers, when, for example, the great man- anarchist leader, Machno, Nesta Machno, raised armies which, first of all, fought uh, the whites uh, when they were there, but he also hated the Reds uh, for their dictatorship and, uh, and cruelty. And as a result, you know, you have this uh, uh, almost triangular war going on in all of that area of eastern, of eastern Ukraine. In your last answer, you briefly referred to the involvement of international powers in this conflict. And many of the great powers of Europe did line up on the side of the White Army. How was it that they weren't able to shift the outcome of the conflict? Did they just, were they not as involved as they needed to be? Were they not as sincere about their commitment? Their commitment was should we say, unclear. And this was always the problem. They could not make up their own mind. One has to remember that the Supreme Allied Council in Paris during this particular period of 1918, they were trying to sort out the whole world almost, which was an impossible task at that particular time. Now, when um, in the uh, early part of 1918, uh, President Woodrow Wilson thought that they might be able to somehow create some form of peace in Russia, uh, he suggested a conference in the islands of Principo in the Sea of Marmara, um, close to Constantinople. But the whites were so furious at the Reds and what had happened of the murders of, uh, uh, of the aristocracy, the uh, uh, destruction and everything like that, that they refused to sit down with the Reds. And Lenin and uh, the Bolsheviks uh, had no intention at that stage, they thought they were going to win, and had no intention really of taking part themselves. And this gave Churchill, he thought, his great opportunity, because they had agreed that there would be a certain amount of help to the white cause in terms of providing weaponry. Now, you can provide weapons and you can provide supplies. You've got to be able to get them there first. And they weren't able to get until the First World War came to an end in in November 1918. They didn't have access through the Dardanelles and they couldn't therefore supply the Cossacks and Denikin's white armies in the south of Russia. The first sort of supplies were able to come in through the north, through Murmansk, where the British already had a uh, a base and an archangel uh, with some Marines who'd been landed earlier on at the beginning of 1917 uh, and 18 to uh, protect the supplies which had been delivered there, which they were afraid that the Germans from the Finnish Civil War might take over. So there was, again, a sort of curious triangle of of conflict right up in the north. And then, of course, in the Far East, you have, and this is terribly important, again, from the future, 
this rivalry between America and Japan. Japan, of course, was one of our allies uh, towards the end of the First World War. And so the Japanese were starting to land huge numbers of troops. I mean, at one stage, they had almost 70,000 troops in Siberia. And the Americans, of course, were extremely anxious about this. So they sent in they sent in about the equivalent of a small division of troops as part of an expeditionary force. Uh, the British landed only a couple of uh, battalions, uh, the Middlesex Regiment, the Hampshire Regiment, eventually. Uh, but there were also Italians, there were Serbs, there were Greeks, um, and then the French, of course, in when they came into Odessa uh, and into the Black Sea. You had quite a large French force, which actually proved to be a disaster because so many of their troops after the mutinies of 1917 following the Nivelle Offensive and the First World War were politicised and uh, were much more sympathetic towards the Bolsheviks uh, than they were towards their own officers. And uh, this proved, with the mutiny of the Black Sea Fleet, proved a tremendous blow to French pride and morale. And there were also tensions between the French and the British, even though they were allies, where the British were supporting, if you like, the Cossacks and Denikin uh, over in the Caucasus and um, the Donbass region, while the French were concentrating around Odessa. So you again, this is where one starts to have the first proxy war of the 20th century. Now, was there a particular battle or campaign that was decisive in the Reds' ultimate victory, or did the White campaign essentially fizzle out in the end? The interesting thing is, when you're talking about such a vast landmass of Russia, you can have huge advances, which would then collapse suddenly. The whole idea, the whole idea, you know, the critical mass, uh, uh, the whole idea that uh, you would suddenly lose momentum because the supplies weren't getting through, and then you'd have to retreat. And as soon as you were retreating, then suddenly it would swing back in the other direction. The Reds had this huge advantage of internal lines, i.e. they were based really in one of the most populous areas of central central Western Russia between basically, you know, between the Volga, between the Volga and the uh, sort of roughly in the Polish frontier. But they also had the population with some of the largest cities, particularly in the north. And many of the factories, and particularly the arms factories, the whites, of course, did have a huge advantage simply in the sheer delivery of all of the surplus ammunition, guns, artillery, machine guns, rifles, etc., uh, which made up for their lack of factories and also lack of proletariat or factory workers, you know, to build uh, the sort of things that they needed. But that question of internal uh, lines was incredibly important, especially when it came to the crucial moments. I mean, there were moments when the Bolsheviks themselves thought that they'd lost the civil war and almost were preparing to uh, abandon Moscow when, uh, for example, there was the sudden advance of Kolchak's troops right all the way back towards the uh, towards the Volga in very early 1918, uh, 1919. Uh, meanwhile, the trouble was that the great advance of Denikin from the south in 1919 did not coincide. The Kolchak's advance had petered out. In fact, they were in full retreat by the time that the march on Moscow, which uh, Denikin called on in the early summer of uh, 1919, had started. And the advance went well. But they swarmed up towards Moscow. And again, there were moments when Trotsky and others really thought that this might be it. But what they had managed to do, in fact, was that the Red Army had concentrated its troops from the south the previous, at the end of the previous year 
against the Eastern Front, against Kochak's troops in Siberia, and pushed them back. And this actually was what saved them in a way, because although they lost a huge amount of ground to begin with uh, the following year when Denikin advanced, by the very fact that they had no longer had to worry about Kolchak's troops uh, to the east in Siberia, they were able to reinforce their troops and turn it around. And in uh, October 1919, one saw this complete turnaround. This was the, the final turning point, if you like, in the war. Churchill couldn't believe what had happened. I mean, he was sending these signals the whole time to General Holman, who was the uh, commander of the British military mission. Uh, saying, I can't believe this. What's happened? You know, there they were. You Reds were in full retreat. And now suddenly they seem to be um, beating the, the whites on every front. What's happened? And he'd failed to understand that actually it was purely because they had reinforced that eastern front at a crucial moment. And then, again, with the advantage of their internal lines, being able to bring them back very rapidly to transform the whole situation. One man we haven't talked about a huge about so far is Joseph Stalin. Um, and I know that over the years, his supporters and detractors have either sought to build up or downplay his role in the revolution and civil war. From your point of view, how important a figure was he at this stage? Well, he was an important figure uh, from the point of view of what the future held, i.e. the alliances that he made within the party were actually what brought him to power during this period. He made a close alliance with Czerzynski, the head of the Cheka, Interestingly, both of them had been studied to be priests and then turned viciously against religion in all of its form. And he also made alliances with the 1st Cavalry Army. And this was started at Tsaritsyn, which later became Stalingrad, named after him. Um, now, a lot of this, of course, was sort of, you know, myth later on or part of the whole of the uh, cult of personality which Stalin developed. He was only a, he was a commissar, uh, basically a political commissar, who then sort of portrayed himself as a military leader. And he did then play a, a critical but probably rather disastrous role in the invasion of Poland in 1920 because uh, Stalin refused to follow orders and uh, General Tukhashevsky, uh, later the famous marshal who was, of course, one of the first to be killed by Stalin in the purge of the Red Army in uh, 1937, ordered the southern front you know, to come to the north and to stop trying to create their own area, if you like, of operations towards, towards Lvov, or Lviv as it is now. And um, Stalin, as I say, flagrantly disobeyed orders, despite Trotsky's uh, instructions and all the rest of it. And he often was therefore blamed by Tukhashevsky and many others for the disaster which befell the Red Army in the Battle of the Vistula, the battle before, before Warsaw, when Tulsudsky took this tremendous risk, but it was a brilliant one, uh, of cutting off all of the armies in the north. Uh, and basically breaking the back of the Red Army for some time. Stalin only managed to get away with it, I think, uh, by sheer brass neck when he was summoned back to, to um, Moscow to sort of explain. And he was pushed sideways for a bit. But the point was that having made his particular sort of contacts within the party and the way that, of course, he was despised as basically as an uncultured pockmarked gangster uh, and despised by Trotsky and the others who were much more intellectuals. 
this sort of bitterness was going to come out very much later uh, as he started to uh, immediately after Lenin's death, or in fact, even during Lenin's uh, serious illness, uh, Stalin was going to be the one who would emerge, having seized the levers of power without the others realizing because they had despised him. You should never, you should never underestimate somebody, but um, he was uh, in a position eventually to take those levers of power uh, bit by bit until he had complete control. And this was very much what Stalin did. So once the civil war, Russian Civil War is eventually over and it's led to huge loss of life, huge destruction, was Russia really on its knees at this point? Oh, yes, it was starving. I mean, it was actually the American relief program. I mean, to begin with, Lenin refused this idea that they should seek help abroad. But I mean, there were appalling famines all down the Volga, uh, a lot of the Black Earth area. And this was because of the way that the peasants had revolted against the, the food detachments sent out. These were communists from, from the cities sent out to extract the food, and they would just seize the seed corn as well for the next year. So um, the harvests uh, were totally disastrous. And I mean, there was cannibalism in many areas, uh, and in Siberia too, particularly in, in, in Western Siberia. And the, the, the suffering was simply appalling. And this is actually what Gorky had warned about right from the start uh, when he war- tried to warn the Russian people, you know, that uh, this is where Lenin is leaving you. What was the reaction around the world to communist victory in the civil war? How concerned were the Western powers by the, the triumph of Lenin and the Bolsheviks? I think they were greatly perturbed to Guatemala. I mean, just looking at the British, uh, one has to remember that uh, at the end of the First World War, there was considerable problems of obviously getting de- um, demobilizing the British Army, which was huge by that stage. And I mean, there were mutinies, large mutinies in France. We didn't suffer the mutinies that the French Army had suffered, which was actually during the war, like the, the ones after the Nivelle Offensive. But um, there were serious ones, and at one particular point, you know, Churchill and General Wilson, the, field, the chief of the general staff, considered the British democracy was basically basically on a knife edge at that particular point. What the the great split in a way was really between Lloyd George and Churchill. Churchill felt that we we had to defeat the Bolsheviks so as to prevent the uh, the disease spreading. But Lloyd George was arguing, if we spend all this money on supporting the whites in Russia, uh, we're going to have a Bolshevik revolution here. Um, so there were sort of, they were looking at the same problem, but from totally, totally different points of view. Now, quite a few times in the course of this conversation, you've alluded to the fact that some of the places being fought over then have been fought over again recently in the Russia-Ukraine war. But how far do you think the civil war does prefigure the events of today? Or actually, is it not really a sensible parallel to be making? I don't think we should make too many parallels at all. Um, There are lots of superficial parallels that one can make. I mean, for example, I think one of the most important ones was that we never expected Putin to invade, partly because rather like in the late 1930s and say the time of Munich, the British and the French could not believe after the horrors of the First World War, that anyone would ever want another world war uh, or another battle in that particular way. They totally failed to understand that Hitler was determined to have a war. And in fact, was angry that that Chamberlain had given in at Munich um, and he'd been deprived of his war against Czechoslovakia. 
Now, this is the thing. We, we, we always fail to understand dictators. This is the problem. Dictators don't think like generals. One can put oneself into the boots of a general and get a rough idea of how they see things. But a dictator is very, very different. But to go back to the Russian Civil War, there one has to see and one can see the way that, in fact, this was really the moment when Ukraine was starting to develop a more modern uh, nationalism. Now, this was very much more a nationalism coming from intellectuals. So there was already a Ukrainian culture in the countryside, in the poetry, and in a lot of the literature. But then they, uh, with Petliura and with the Ukrainian Rada, there they really did want to take Ukraine forward to create a completely different state. And they've been given the opportunity. This is what Putin has been raging about. It was Lenin who almost gave away uh, Ukraine at that particular stage. Rather like with Finland, uh, the Bolsheviks thought that there was going to be no trouble about allowing a certain amount of autonomy or independence to these former uh, nation states of the Russian Empire because the world revolution would bring them back under control. And that's where they made their, they made their, their, their great mistake. That was Anthony Beaver. Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921, is out now published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can read a version of this interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which will be in the shops in the UK from the 9th of June. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.